Welcome to Candid Catholic Convos, a program brought to you by the Catholic Diocese of Harrisburg. Our mission is to humanize the church and help you to grow in your faith, love, and understanding. I'm your host, Rachel Trochet, a cradle Catholic who's only human and struggled with faith on more than one occasion. Each week, you'll hear engaging, down-to-earth interviews and actionable strategies you can implement into your life with ease to help you grow closer to God. If you're ready to open your heart and step fully into the person God created you to be, then you're in the right place. Let's get started. Hello, and thank you so much for joining me on another episode of Candid Catholic Convos. My husband and my boys are big fans of superheroes. All the capes, all the crusades, all the crime fighting, they are engrossed. I regularly tell my husband he should consider opening his own comic shop because of the amount of comic books and memorabilia he has stashed away. Now, I know what you're thinking, but Rachel, this is a Catholic program. Why are we talking about superheroes? What do superheroes and the Eucharist have in common? I'm so glad you asked, because this week you're going to get a special glimpse into our renewed mini-sode series, Musings of a Catholic Evangelist, with Sister Geraldine Schmidt of the Sisters of Christian Charity. And if DC superheroes are your thing, you'll definitely want to keep listening to what Father Don Bender of St. Patrick Parish in Carlisle has to say about his revert experience, his transformative encounters with the Eucharist, and his homily to First Communicants. Some time ago, I had a wonderful experience of binge-watching with my 11-year-old nephew, the TV series Flash on Netflix. I absolutely love superheroes, especially the Marvel ones. I, I don't know. There's something, there's something amazing when you see a human being gifted by whatever to have these superpowers that rights wrong and does good, you know, and it, it just, it just, I love, just love watching them. Next morning, as after this binge watching, I think we saw a whole season of episodes of The Flash. During my morning prayer time, I realized that th there are superheroes in the Catholic Church, and we call them saints. And that a lot of those superheroes, a lot of the saints that we have in our church, focused on and wrote about and taught about the Eucharist and the importance of the Eucharist. Um, one of them was Blessed Carlo Cutis, who had the superhuman ability of computer programming back when creating websites were kind of a, a mystery to the average Joe. He created a website that cataloged Eucharistic mir miracles for the entire world to see. His love of the Eucharist was clearly seen on this, on this website. Another saint in the, in the Orthodox Church by the name of Nicholas Cabayas used his pen to teach about the Eucharist. When describing the Eucharist, he says, Unlike any other sacrament, the mystery of the Eucharist is so perfect that it brings us to the heights of every good thing. Here is the ultimate goal of every human desire because here we attain God and God joins himself to us in the most perfect union. Through the sacrament, 
the Pilgrim Church is nourished, deepen her communion with the triune God and consequently that of her members and one another. Wow, the pen is truly mightier than the sword. There are other Catholic heroes, superheroes, that talked about the Eucharist. St. Peter Julian Elmerd is a hero. He writes, The world is ignorant concerning the Eucharist. It is not preached about often enough. The faithful complain of this and wait for someone who will feed them with the word of true life. If we do not preach the Blessed Sacrament, the reason is that our hearts do not understand it. If preachers adored the Blessed Sacrament more often, they would preach about it more often. And yet the salvation of the world lies in Jesus Christ abiding in our midst. I think our world needs superheroes that love the Eucharist. I think Catholics that believe in the, in the true presence and the really understanding of what the Eucharist is about need to be superheroes in today's world, teaching, telling, relating about the Eucharist in the church, that the Eucharist is the body and blood, soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ. So put your, your superhero capes on and your toolbox and get out there and become the superheroes that your baptism is called you to be. Father Don, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm, I'm really excited to have you on the program and be able to ask you some of these questions. Would you mind telling me a little bit about yourself? Okay, well, uh, there's a lot to tell, but I'll keep it, keep it pretty brief. I'm from uh, Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. I grew up in a small kind of rural town, Ephrata, Pennsylvania. It's kind of historically known because one of the first monastic communities was in Ephrata, but not Catholic. They were Anabaptist, uh, um, actually. Um, the Ephrata Cloister is kind of the trademark of the town, but it's more rural than urban. And so um, a lot of farming areas around it. Grew up, my dad's side of the family was a farming family. He worked making farm machinery in a factory all his life. And so, again, that's kind of my roots, uh, um, the Ephrata Lancaster County area. Grew up Catholic. Um, long story, really short, left the church for a while. It was Mennonite. That's a whole other conversation for a while. Came back to the church. So in Catholic ease, I'm known as a revert because I re you know, reverted back to the Catholic faith after being away for a while. And then um, my 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 reversion back, my conversion back to the faith follows along with my vocation to the priesthood. And so not longer after I came back to the faith, I entered seminary, became a priest. So I'm an older vocation. I entered seminary at like 39 years old. And so I have a little bit of you know, otherworldly experience. I spent 13 years in the tourism business industry for a while. I, I graduated college with a teacher's degree and I substituted for five years in that area. So a little bit of a quirky background prior to priesthood. I think it helps me in my priesthood um, greatly. So I uh, grew up with one sister, my, uh, you know, my mom and dad and one just one sister who's married. And I have uh, one nephew who just turned 21. Feels like he was born yesterday, but yes, just turned 21. So 
Um, and then my mom's family, super Catholic, Irish Catholic from Berks County, Reading area. My dad, kind of the opposite. He They were raised uh, Lutheran in the Lidditz area. And so not, he was not Catholic. He never converted to, to the Catholic Church. And so so my dad's side of the family, strong farming sat, uh, family. Mom's side of the family, kind of an urban Reading area uh, kind of family. So that's kind of my background. I was ordained in 2015 by, I think I was the, uh, my class was the first class that Bishop Gaynor ordained deacons. And then, so he did, I forget who the priest was here, was his first priest, but we were the first deacons that he ordained uh, when he got here. Um, and so I was ordained priest 2015. My first assignment was St. Patrick's in Carlisle. I was there for two years, 2015, 2017. Then I was pastor at Our Lady of Lords in Enola from 2017, 2019. And then back to St. Patrick's in Carlisle, 2019. And as of July 1st, I've been there three years. And it will be my longest assignment in any one place. <laughs> so, so that's, I guess that's me. I like... If you ask the kids at school, I like comic books and superheroes. I like to go to the movies. I like trains. It's kind of my hobbies when I'm not being priestly. So that's there, amazing. There yeah, I love how <laughs> how you have all this life experience of growing up Catholic and then leaving the faith and then coming back, and how it's formed your journey and how it's formed how you how you spread the faith. I think that's that's awesome. And also, I'm a big comic book superhero fan as well. Excellent. So. We have that in common. <laughs> so this episode is going to be part of a series on the Eucharistic revival. And I've heard a lot of people talk about having truly transformative experiences when they receive the Eucharist at some point in their lives. Personally, I have not had that yet. Like nothing really sticks out to me currently. But have you ever had an experience with the Eucharist that changed you? I'd say there are probably two, two big ones. The first one was, so um, let's dive back into my vocation story. And so I had been away from the church and I met, um, I lived not far from a Catholic church. So I called that pastor up and I said to him, look, I, we need to talk because I think I'm feeling a call to the priesthood. So we met, he realized I'd been away from the church for a long time. And he said, maybe you need, you know, you know, first you need to come back into the church before we can talk about seminary and priesthood. He goes, and it wouldn't hurt for you to go to RCIA. Now, I didn't need it because I was baptized, confirmed in the faith. So, but um, he said, you've been away for so long, it wouldn't hurt you to go. So I went to RCIA at that church. Ama amazing teachers. Great experience. I highly recommend it. Like we're not to advertise St. Patrick's, but we are, ha we do have an adult faith formation class on, it's called I Love Being Catholic. And it's kind of walks you through the catechism, which is what RCIA kind of does too. And so anyway, it's great to learn the faith as an adult is what I'm, to relearn the faith as an adult, you know, kind of away from family and things. So that's what I was doing. I was re-experiencing the Catholic faith for the first time away from family and um, other influences. And so it was really great. So about, I'd say three months into RCIA classes, I made a good confession which, you know, took a while because it'd been 20 years, I think. And then um, then that Sunday after that, I went to Mass and received the Eucharist for the first time in 20 years. And I probably going to start crying now, but I cried then as well. Like I cried the whole way up to the priest and then the whole way back to my seat 
because it was there was just something about it, something about receiving, you know, the Eucharist, communion, the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ that gives us strength, gives us hope and and faith, and all that was kind of flowing back into me at one time. And so that was pretty amazing. I would call that uh, whatever you life-moving experience or whatever. The second one was, this was five years ago, um, St. Patrick's and Carlisle went on a pilgrimage to Lourdes and Fatima. And on that pilgrimage, we stopped at a little church that had a Eucharistic miracle. Um, And so they had a monstrance with a communion host that was bleeding and, and or or had bled or was congealed with blood and we could walk right up to it and see it and it was overwhelming like it it was just overwhelming and i think everyone would say the same thing has said the same thing who experienced it there it was just kind of an overwhelming sense of faith and holiness and like heaven in that space and so it was kind of really great those are two really great moments with the eucharist i think that i've had there you go That's pretty incredible. I remember when I was in school, there was a deacon that used to come to our eighth grade class right before confirmation. He used to come in weekly and talk to us about stuff like this. And he had told us about an experience that he had had where he saw or what he thought he saw uh, it bleeding when he was in adoration. And I remember going, that's just wild, but it's got to be pretty powerful to see it and and maybe one day I will get to have an experience similar to that. Yeah, that would be awesome. For people listening who might not be Catholic or might have stepped away from the faith, can you expand on what does the Eucharist mean and why is it called that? Is there a difference between Eucharist and communion? For example, like why is it called First Holy Communion and not First Holy Eucharist? Okay, that is a great question. I have no idea. No, <laughs> no, that's horrible. I, that's not true. <laughs> I have an opinion. <laughs> but um, you, I mean, the the first part of that question is easy. Eucharist means Thanksgiving, and and so so part of that is, and you know, so, something in my church that I've been really trying to emphasize is why we come to mass. It is not for us. It is not for us to feel good. It is not for us to get something out of it it is for us to give thanks to God for all that he does for us and the the culmination of that thanks that thanks is thanksgiving that culmination of that worship service that mass is the eucharist is so we're saying thanks to him for all he does in our life and all he will do and at the end of that he's saying here is me Take me with you so that you can do my work in the world. And so, like, it's like an exchange of gift, right? So, you know, when we come to Mass and we say, man, I, those those songs really don't do anything for me. Well, they're not supposed to do anything for you. There aren't songs for you. They're songs to give thanks to God for what he's done in our lives. So if we listen to the words and our music directors are very good, they have picked songs that do that. And songs that are particular to that Sunday's reading sometimes or themes and sometimes like that. But so Eucharist really is a thanksgiving to God for all he has done in our life. And then we receive that to go out now. The difference between First Holy Communion and First Holy Eucharist. So the, I, don't, I think that's 
Let's call that a mystery of the church. (laughs) The Catholic church embraces mystery, and here is one of them. But, I mean, again, like, if you think about maybe First Holy Communion, I because she sent me these questions ahead of time, people, just so you know. And so I thought about it. I said, well, maybe they use the word communion, especially in First Holy Communion, because to remind the children that they're becoming a part of a greater family experience in the Eucharist and that the receiving of the Eucharist isn't just for them, but for the whole church family to participate in. And now they get to be a greater participant, participant in that communion. And so I can see how that word would be important to emphasize and stress, but I think it's synonymous with U- Eucharist. You could exchange it. To be honest, we say First Holy Communion at St. Patrick's, but you could probably say First Holy Eucharist too. But more people understand communion, I think, than the than that Greek word. What is that Greek word? I don't know. But but anyway, so that's my take on that question. No, I appreciate that. And that does that makes so much sense. And I really loved how beautifully you put that it's an exchange, that going to church is an exchange of thanks and a gift. And when you put it that way, it makes the argument of like, well, the music's lame at church. Like, like, why does it always sound? But it makes so much sense that it's it's not for us. I mean, like, God, that makes so much sense. So I really appreciate your Thank insight you. on that. So what does it mean when we say that Jesus is truly present in the Eucharist? Oof, that's a big one. That's a big one. <laughs> because that's where there's some division in the in our family, right? That's where some other Protestants go, whoa, you know, and say that, like, that's too much, blah, blah, blah. And so... So I thought I thought about that question a lot when when I looked over it. And so I want to reemphasize the fact that the Catholic Church truly embraces mystery, which is one of the things I love about the Catholic Church. I love to be able to say the the phrase, um, yeah, I don't know. And I ain't going to know until I get to heaven (laughs) because it's just mystery. And so this is one of those mysteries, I think, that we just need to have faith in. Right. That's what, I mean, and that's where the church really comes in. Like St. Pope John the Paul II taught us that faith picks up where reason leaves off. And so this is one of those exchanges of reason and faith that we may not understand what actually is going on in that little communion host, but it is becoming the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. And and I have no idea how that ha- like I don't know why I have a little idea how that happens, but like just the fact that it is that is just kind of a mystery to me and something I don't think I'll fully understand till I get to heaven and am face to face with the Almighty. But that is where our faith needs to p- pick up where our reason left. So our reason says to us, no way, like that's wheat and water and you know gluten or whatever, and it's always going to be that. And I just can't believe it turns into anything else. That's our reason. But our faith comes in and says, no, John 6 teaches us that it is not. You know, the Last Supper teaches us that it's not. Corinthians, all those verses in the Bible that teach us it is not just wheat and gluten and water, that it is the body, blood, soul, and divinity. And the purpose of us receiving it is to give us strength and hope and faith and all those things. So that's my guess on the mystery of the Eucharist. (laughs) No, the Catholic Church does love mystery. When we get up to heaven, we're like, God, I have some questions. Like, can we get these answered, please? (laughs) You mentioned John chapter six. I want to piggyback off of that. In John chapter six, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. This bread 
that I will give is my flesh. Unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you do not have life within you. He goes on to repeat this a total of five times in these verses. And further on, the Jews are actually questioning him and they're like, you know, this is a little weird. I don't know. How do we eat him? How? I'm not sure I can really get behind this teaching. To the point that Jesus actually turns to Peter and asks if he will leave too. And Peter says, well, where else will I go? I'm assuming that the people who followed Jesus at this point were pretty confused. Like, we're not cannibals. And Jesus was known to speak pretty figuratively in parables. In this case, though, is he speaking literally or is he speaking figuratively? Okay, so Catholic theologians will tell you literally. Okay, and, and there's a couple reasons for that. Like, there's some wording on in the... Then the Greek that Jesus is reading, where it translates as gnawing or chewing. Um, and so you're like, oh, that kind of sounds literal to me that he wants us to eat and gnaw at it. And so, yeah, I can see some confusion, right? But the end of John chapter six is one of my favorite proofs that what he said in six was literal, not figuratively, because in the end, there are people who are like, well, just too much. I'll see you later. And they leave. And Jesus doesn't say, hey, hey, wait, I meant it figuratively. I meant it as a symbol. Please come back. He doesn't. He lets them go. Because this is something he needs them to believe literally. And he's speaking truthfully about it. And so if they're not ready for it, then it's your time to leave. He didn't. Like if it would have been something figurative or or symbolic, I feel like he would have said, Hey, whoa, don't leave. Let me explain, you know, because just kidding. Did, yeah, you know? just kidding. Or like, no, no, let me let me sit down with my apostles. Like he did that before, like with um, I'm being really bad at my Bible right now, but there were some parables the 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 apostles didn't understand. And so like he says, OK, let me sit down with you and explain to you the meaning of the parable because I need you to understand it. He didn't do that here. He was like, nope, this is it. This is what it is. Believe it. Or not, like believe it and stay, or don't and leave. And then, like, I love Peter's response. Like, where would where would I go? Like, who would what? <laughs> like, I've been with you, you know, for four for six chapters now. Like, why would and I think that's why, like, I think Jesus had waited till a moment in the ministry where he was like, Okay, they they really believe in what I'm saying. They they want to follow me. So now I'm gonna drop the mic and see what and see where things fall. And 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 he let them fall like he let some leave and some stay. And the 12 were like, you know, we're anchored. We're going to do we're going to see this to the end. And so I think that's just kind of I mean, I think he said what the way the ending of that chapter ends defines that it's literal, not not figurative, because he just kind of let them choose their path and let them be on their way. And we need to be like that in faith. Like we you know, we can't hope to convert the whole planet with, you know, a few words. Like we need to plant seeds. We need to share the faith with love and see where it takes them. We can't force it on them or push it on them. Like he couldn't, he could have said, please come back and let me explain more. But he was like, no, no, this is something you need to sink your teeth into. <laughs> That's figuratively. And 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 you know, and just kind of soak in on it. And we need to do that as well. We can't we have to hope that there'll be conversion, but we can't push the conversion or force it. And so there we go. Is that a good answer? No, absolutely. That makes <laughs> it makes a lot of sense because okay. you're right. Like he doesn't there are plenty of times where he's like, All right, hold up, let me break this down a little bit further for you. But instead, he's 
lets people come to the conclusion on their own, Mm -hmm. which I guess makes a lot of sense for people who are converts and reverts of like he throws the breadcrumbs out there, but it's our responsibility to pick them up if we so choose. Yep. So that makes that makes a ton of sense. Back in the day, a long time ago, (laughs) I was an altar server. So I've seen the wafers we used for communion, at least at the time. They came mm-hmm. in a big plastic bag mm-hmm. and we put them in the ciborium, which fun fact, I had no idea what that holder thing was called. I had to call up one of the deacons in the building and say, what I can't call it the holder thing. <laughs> so it's it is ciborium. called a ciborium. Yep. <laughs> but we used to put them in there before mass. So when does the wafer stop being a wafer? And actually become the body of Christ. Okay, that is a great question because it never it never stops being a wafer. <laughs> so it's always a it's always a clump of wheat, water, and gluten. Like it's always that. But at one moment, it is transformed, but not changed into the body and blood of Christ. When does that happen? Oof, okay, so there's a lot of I don't want to say debate, but theories on it. I like, but it absolutely happens during the words of consecration, and that's for sure. Like I, I was uh, in youth group a couple weeks ago, and I brought the Roman Missal with me, and I said, like, "Wouldn't it be fun if they, not not everyone sees that big red book that we use on the altar, the words in it?" I thought it would be neat to show them. So in that big red book that no one ever gets to see the words in, unless you you know serve in the altar or walk by it. Those words of consecration are in all bold caps. So it's kind of like the church saying, look, these words are important. <laughs> don't mess them up. <laughs> like You can maybe mess up the other words, but don't mess these words up. And so that was that kind of freaks me out and scares me. And so I'm always like, I always read them because I don't want to mess them up. And my memorization skills are crap. And so like, <laughs> thank God for the red book. But anyway, and so, so. There will be people who will say that um, when you speak those words, that at the end of your speaking of those words, that's when the the host becomes the Eucharist. There are people that say it's a combination of those words and your breath, like the priest breathing on the Because the book says, lean over and speak these words. So feeling like the breath and, and, and the words together make the conversion. And so it's at that moment, at some point in the speaking of those words, that the host becomes the Eucharist through no, like, so through no action of my own personal action, but Christ acting through me. So that, like, if any priest says their knees aren't knocking during that moment, whether they've done it once or a thousand times, I mean, my knees are, I'm seven years a priest and my knees still knock during the consecration because it's just the most, like, because he, here's another thing people don't know about that moment in particular. When when we speak the words of consecration, like we're, the priest is no longer on earth. He is standing in heaven. So heaven opens up during that moment and encompasses the altar so that the priest is standing as Christ present, like present as in being right there in heaven with us, making the the host the Eucharist. Like it's just, and the the wine 
the blood. Like, it's just kind of an overwhelming moment. Like, and I share that with First Holy Communicants. We have a little retreat and I talk about how heaven opens up during the, the consecration. And they're like, what? What? Ha- where? Why? And it's just kind of, again, like a shock and an overwhelming thing to know that that consecration, the speaking of those words are being spoken in heaven, not on earth. And it's kind of overwhelming. But that's the true moment of conversion. Those words, that's why they're in bold and caps, I think, in the book. I'm pretty sure that's why they are. But (laughs) yeah, all the priest friends that are listening are probably going, yeah, that's what they are. I'm like, okay, calm down. I know that's what they are. So I went to seminary for a little bit. And so anyway, so that I think that's a good answer to that question. Without yeah. ramb- rambling on and on. No, I love I love that because that's that's something. Again, even as an altar server, I was just like, all right, I put the book here. Like I never actually <laughs> took the time to like look inside of what I was doing. They just told us. I remember, I can't remember the priest's name who like trained us as altar servers. So he, he called it setting the table, and I was just like, all right, it's just setting the table for dinner. Like <laughs> the plate goes here, this goes here. Like, but that's it's it's a powerful moment. And I can, my son is, is going into first grade. So in a couple, in a year or two, he'll be making his first holy. And I can see him going, what? Like (laughs) my four-year-old last night was asking me deep questions. And now I'm going to have to do like, well, it's a mystery. (laughs) We're going to ask God when he gets to heaven. It's a mystery. (laughs) Believe it. Yes. (laughs) J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of the Lord of the Rings series is quoted as saying, Out of the darkness of my life, so much frustrated, I put before you the one great thing to love on earth, the blessed sacrament. There you will find romance, glory, honor, fidelity, and the true way of all your loves upon earth. At your parish, I understand St. Patrick's has an adoration chapel where the blessed sacrament is perpetually exposed. What is adoration and is it different from receiving the Eucharist at Mass? Well, that is a great question. Yes, we do have. I'll be honest, it's not perpetual. <laughs> I'll just make that confession right now. There, Saturday hours are a little weak. <laughs> and there are some weekday hours, especially in the early morning, that are a little weak. Tuesdays from 1 a.m. to 2 a.m., that's my hour. And sometimes I oversleep. So I'm just confessing. But it's still there most most hours of every day of every week. So, ad- so adoration comes from... And I'm not sure my history is 100% correct, but... Back in the day when the mass was said, when the priests back to where the their back was to the people and they were uh, doing the mass in Latin, there were moments where, you know, those two moments where they elevate the host and they elevate the chalice. And, and they were finding that when they elevated the host, that people were becoming overwhelmed at that moment. And so somewhere in history, someone thought, hey, what if we put the host in a reliquary or a monstrance? And put it out for people to adore because they seem to like to do that. And then that's kind of the the beginnings of adoration. I could talk forever about adoration, but, you know, it's part of my vocation story about my call of priesthood was through, you know, when I first met with the vocation director, the very first thing he told me to do was pray, pray, pray. And he encouraged me to go to adoration. Thankfully, I live two blocks from another perpetual adoration chapel in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. So I, I started going there and it was, you know, what what we get out of adoration is time. I mean, you could sit there and pray the rosary or chaplets or whatever. But the most important thing to do in adoration is to listen. We have a hard time doing that as a people, as a culture, 
right now is just sitting and listening. And it was, you know, it was sitting and listening during those times that kind of really anchored my desire to be a priest, my call to the priesthood. And so, you know, adoration is a really great space to do that. You know, it's a really great space to go to when, you know, we're struggling in life or we just want to spend time with Jesus, knowing that he is there, not just spiritually, but body, blood, soul, divinity right in front of us, kind of looking us in the face. And so that's, I mean, and having chapels around the diocese where you have the opportunity to do that is great. It is not a substitute for Sunday Mass, because receiving the Eucharist is what gives us the strength. You know, like I said earlier, really the purpose of receiving the Eucharist is to give us the strength to go out into the community and use the Holy Spirit that's already within us to evangelize and, you know, strengthen our families and all those things. And so, so adoration, like Tolkien's got good words. He always does. He was probably paid by the word when he wrote or something like that. I don't know. He just, his books are so thick, but, um, but he does, I mean, it is a place where we can fall in love again with the Eucharist, you know, find our honor and our fidelity and all those things that lead us to the way of all your loves upon the earth, which should all find their source in Christ and in the Eucharist. So, so I think they're two equally important things. That's not saying, I'm not saying you should go to adoration. I'm, I'd love you to go to, I'd love you to fill all our hours at adoration that we have open, but getting there once in a while, making a commitment, maybe once a week or once a month even to visit our Lord in adoration is a really great thing. I know most all of our churches in the diocese have 40 hours um, devotions at least once a year. And those are a great three days to experience adoration, you know, opportunity at your home, even your home parish. And so I'd highly recommend it, you know, just to sit and find some peace in our world. That's a good place to do it. You mentioned how we can spend our time in adoration. Oh, okay. What are some specific ways? Like, are there specific ways we're supposed to pray? Like, what are we supposed to be doing? Again, again, and again, I know this is really hard to hear. There are a bunch of ways to do this. Probably the the best way is Ignatian. Um, St. Ignatius came up with some good ways to pray. I would not necessarily in front of the Blessed Sacrament, but pray in general. But it is a good method for praying in one of the in front of the Blessed Sacrament. So it's reading a piece of scripture and then putting your putting yourself into that scripture. And so, like one of the scriptures I love to do that is in um, Jeremiah. I think it's Jeremiah something something forty three something something, um, and it talks about Jer- um, God calls Jeremiah down to the Potter's house. Um, because he wants to speak to him, but he wants to speak to him at the potter's house for some reason, and or the potter's shop. And so, so I put myself into that scene, and I go down to the potter's house, and kind of again, a part of the prayer method is to listen. So you're you're listening to the scene as it's going on. You're participating in the scene, and hopefully, as the as you get deeper into that scene in the Bible, like God speaks to you. And so that's a kind of a good way to. To, to sit in front of adoration and, and pray. I tend to, like my hour usually consists of doing, you know, reading scripture, praying scripture, and then doing a rosary. I do a rosary for people. Uh, it was, I was taught like 10 years ago. Um, so every bead has a name attached to it. I pray for that person as I pray that bead. And so that kind of helps me, you know, get through it and give purpose to the, to the rosary. Um, and I do that during adoration as well. 
Um, but just, you know, just kind of uh, just sitting, right? And just kind of being in the presence is really important. And then something, you know, like as you continue to grow and do that, like you'll see fruit, I'm sure. So it's my advice. I love that. I love the idea of having a name attached to each of the beads on the rosary. Yeah. That gives so much more purpose to it rather than just going through the motions. So what would you recommend to someone looking to grow more in love with the Eucharist? Whoa. Okay. So I thought about this. I'm going to say three things because, you know, I'm a a Protestant preacher at heart. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Every Protestant preacher has three points to make in their sermons or whatever. But anyway, so the first is the mass. You know, I hear so often from young people and and people in general, we're not getting anything out of it. Like it doesn't do anything for us. Like it's not like we're not. And I'm like, okay, look, then you're not paying attention. I'm like, you just get put it, put your phone down, put the bulletin down that you've been reading since the gospel, like put that down and pay attention. Listen to the words of the mass that the priest says, because they're pretty amazing. Let me give you an example, just a really quick one about the mass. So last Sunday's mass, right? All I do to prepare my homily is look at the readings. It's all I do. I don't look at anything else. I should, to be honest, but I don't. I just look at the readings and then some commentaries. This past Sunday, the opening prayer was identical to my homily. There were two intercessions in the intercessions after the creed that fit my homily. And I didn't plan any of that. And so it would have been awesome had someone came out of mass and said, hey, Father, that opening prayer and intercessions matched your homily pretty good. No, Nobody did that. (laughs) That's not to say that there weren't people making that connection and they just didn't make a comment. But I'm saying, listen to what I'm saying, to what the priest is saying. Like, listen to the Eucharistic prayer, to the words of consecration and the and the prayers around it. Like, just listen, because those, will, I know they will, help you fall in love with the Mass all over again and give you new, you know, and, and I, I'm, I'm not sure how other priests are, but honest, honestly, I change it up. I never use the same Eucharistic prayer. I'm always using different ones because there's like, you may not know this, but there's like, eight we can pick from for a Sunday morning. Now, I don't pick from the eight, but I do pick, well, actually, I pick from the six. So there's four regular ones we use every Sunday. I rotate through those pretty good. Now, the fourth one, you can only use during ordinary time. So guess when I, last Sunday, ordinary time, I used it. There's two called Eustric Prayers of Reconciliation. I use those during Advent and Lent because those are times of reconciliation, right? And so, like, I kind of change up the Eucharistic prayer every Sunday, hopefully, so people are like, hey, that sounds different. I didn't hear that last Sunday. Because if you say the same Eucharistic prayer over and over again, people are going to be like, no, no, I don't want you falling asleep. I want you paying attention. So, um, so that's one. Adoration is another. Going to adoration and experiencing adoration. And then the third is, it's it's kind of one of my pet peeves in the Catholic Church, like, you would be surprised how much writing is out there by popes that no one ever reads. 
and it's so freaking good. <laughs> like I used to get so mad in seminary because I would they would have us read something and I'd read that and I'd be like, holy wow, that's amazing. Why have I never read that before? <laughs> and so like, not that I'm going to encourage you to go out and read papal documents, like, but a good source of seeing what the popes had to write is the catechism. So go back to the catechism. If you've never read the catechism, shame on you. If you haven't read the catechism, go back and read the writings of the Eucharist in the catechism. They're pretty beautiful. And then, and then from there, I mean, that's the, one of the purposes of the catechism is there's like a thousand footnotes for every page to help point you to the saints, to the popes, to other writings, so you can see that what we're saying as a church doesn't come from willy-nilly. <laughs> like, and so I, those are my three things. So pay attention in Mass, pay attention in Mass, pay attention in Mass, go to Adoration, and read the Catechism on the Eucharist, because those are three beautiful things. That's fantastic. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. And for those of you who like podcasts, I understand that there is a new podcast coming out on the Catechism in a year. Oh, yeah, by Father Father Mike. Father Mike. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, good stuff. Yeah, so if reading is not your thing, but you like to listen in the car, I hope you're listening to this podcast, but you can also listen to that one. Thank you so much, Father John. This was very enlightening, and I, I hope it reached whoever needed to hear it. And hopefully your holy hours will be filled at the Adoration Chapel. So that kind of with one story? Sure. I just thought of this because you like superheroes like me. Yes. And so let me share with you in five minutes or less my First Holy Communion homily. It has been my First Holy Communion homily for seven years. So if you've heard it before, I'm sorry. But what I do is... Believe it or not, I have a bank that is Superman. And I put the bank, it's a big plastic, you know, bust of Superman. That's a bank. And I put it on the Ambo and I we talk about Superman and all his powers, right? And then I end the the talk about Superman with where he gets his power from. He gets it from the sun. S-U-N. And then I tell, and Superman returns which was not a very popular movie. There's this great scene where he flies up into space and he's just floating in front of the sun, soaking in its rays to get power to take on a bad guy down on earth. And it's a kind of a really pretty scene. And then I said, we are the same. We are the Supermans of this earth because we get our power from the S-O-N in the Eucharist. And our powers are kindness and love and mercy and forgiveness. Those are our powers that we get from the S-O-N. Just like Superman got his powers from the S-U-N. Isn't that a great... That's that's beautiful. I know, right? And and it's Superman, who is my favorite serious superhero of all time, on the DC side. (laughs) He is a good one. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so I just thought that's a good way to... No, I love that. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening. Our goal at the Diocese of Harrisburg is to walk with you on your faith journey. So if this episode resonated with you in any way, the easiest way to show your appreciation is by sharing this program with your network or by leaving a review on your listening platform. You can also support us financially by making a donation online at hbgdiocese.org slash DAC and clicking the make a donation button. Thanks again, and we'll see you at church on Sunday.